Alright, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And I want you to join me as we ask God to bless the preaching of His Word today. Let's pray. Father, we just worship You, Lord, as the Holy, Holy, Holy One. And you are, Lord. You are high and lifted up. You are God most high. And there's none like you, Lord. You stand by yourself, God, in singularity, Lord. You are the Lord our God and you are one. There's none like you. And you have no rivals, Lord. You are holy. You are uncreated majesty. Uncreated purity, Lord. And we desire to dwell in your presence, even this morning. God, we thank you for giving us your word, for condescending, Lord, to creatures like us and breathing out, Lord, these God-breathed words. And we pray this morning, God, that you would bless the preaching of your word today by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would make your word effective in our life, Lord. That you would make it accomplish your purpose in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, Acts chapter 8. I want to begin with reminding us about some themes in the Bible, some themes in the book of Acts. And the first thing is this, that, that we have rock-solid assurance that the church of Jesus will be built, that Jesus will always have His church in this world, the world that we live in. And so we can't even imagine uh, a scenario where the church of Jesus would fall to the wayside, and we know that because in Matthew 16, Jesus said these words, I will build my church. And as followers of Christ, we know that it's more likely for heaven and earth to fall away than it is for that word that Jesus spoke to fall to the ground. And so we have assurance, we have confidence that the church of Jesus, it will be built. Jesus will have a church in this world. And that note of confidence is, is what frames up the entire book of Acts. And we've come back to this several times now that, that the entire book is really an unpacking of that confident prophecy of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And what that prophecy reminds us of, it takes things further than just Jesus will have a church in this world. We actually are taken to a further step of confidence that that church that Jesus has in this world will be a missionary force. It's not just going to be a defensive, you know, in a defensive position, just holding on and waiting for Jesus to come back. That church is going to be an offensive force taking the gospel to the nations. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Confidence. That's what I want to remind us of. Rock, solid, word of God, confidence that the church of Jesus will triumph. The church of Jesus will have victory. Rock, solid, confidence. But here's the thing, and I want us to... Learn this well as followers of Christ. It is important for us to quantify and clarify what type of confidence the gospel gives us. And the, and the most important thing to highlight there is we do not have a confidence from the Word of God that, that evades earthly suffering. Okay, We have confidence but not confidence of that variety of we're going to triumph and nothing bad is going to happen to us. It's not true. Okay? That's not the form of confidence and victory that we're promised 
in the Word of God. And we've been learning about that just in the past couple of weeks as a local church. We had just given attention to the martyrdom of Stephen, okay? the first martyr in the church of Jesus. And so think about this. Uh, prosperity gospel is out the window very early in, in the early church. Eight chapters into church history, it's bye-bye prosperity gospel. Actually, seven. Okay, That very early, very early in the history of the church, the disciples of Jesus learned this lesson very well. They will suffer. There will be earthly suffering. And that's at the same time and simultaneous to and the church of Jesus will be built. And the church of Jesus will advance. The gospel will be preached to all the nations simultaneously. And that's what we're seeing play out in Acts chapter 8. That persecution that we saw in the martyrdom of Stephen is going to be expanded. And we're going to see that this morning. And then we're going to finish our time today with that reminder that in spite of that real suffering, okay, the church of Jesus is going to triumph. And so our text this morning picks up right as the martyrdom of Stephen is accomplished. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read our text together this morning. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this is God's Word for us today. This is our meal as a local church from God's Word. And the thing that, that the text shows us today more than anything else is we, we are getting a reminder today of the nature of God, of what our God is like. This is the most important thing about any human being. And we're reminded through this text that our God is sovereign. He has all power. And we're going to move to that conclusion through these three stages of cause and effect that Luke lines out for us in these four verses. And I want you to see that. That's the structure that the Holy Spirit has given us in this passage of Scripture. Three stages of cause and effect. First, we're going to see that Stephen's martyrdom, it led to a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And second, we're going to move into this, that this persecution led to a great dispersion of the church in Jerusalem. Cause, effect, cause, effect. And then finally, we're going to see that this dispersion, this scattering, the church in Jerusalem led to a massive evangelistic movement that the gospel went to unreached people groups. And so I want you to see this. The text starts with persecution and then the text ends with the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ simultaneously. Okay? And we're going to see that repeat all throughout church history. Let's start in verse 1. Okay? We are reminded in verse 1 with these words, on that day. Verse 1, on that day. That's the day that Stephen was martyred. This was like a flashpoint and a trigger that, that this great persecution arose on that day. And so we know, as we've studied through the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, we know that this Jerusalem church has experienced a measure of peace. They've had a measure of peace and freedom to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And then we see that that changed for this church in one day. In one day. And that's a really good reminder for us in a land that we enjoy a measure, a great measure of freedom. Okay? A great measure of peace that we can worship Jesus Christ and we can preach the gospel. And the reminder for us from Acts 8, very first reminder, this can change in one day. 
This can change in one day. Your life can look very different one month from now than it looks like right now. Your life can look very different as a follower of Christ a year from now than it looks right now. So we have a massive shift. Church has enjoyed a measure of peace. But all of a sudden, this great persecution breaks out. And then in this story, we're introduced to this man named Saul. And Luke holds him out for us that this persecution had a name attached to it. That there was a ringleader of the persecution. He was the organizer, the, the principal. He, he was the, the principal man involved in this persecution. And he tells us that his name was Saul. And it tells us that he is brutally persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And so listen, we're opposed in many ways as followers of Christ. We're isolated in our family sometimes as followers of Christ. We're verbally opposed at times as followers of Christ. But I don't, I don't want to downplay the severity of the persecution that springs up in this Jerusalem church. This is a brutal, brutal persecution. I want you to look at that word in verse 3. In verse 3, Luke tells us, that this persecution can be described as ravaging the church. Ravaging the church. That's the word that the Holy Spirit inspired for us to understand. The church is being ravished. Further, verse 3 tells us that this man saw he is forcefully entering house after house. That means he is kicking in doors, breaking into houses. And dragging disciples of Jesus into prison, into jails. And most likely what's happening in this persecution is he is sniffing out and snuffing out these house meetings that are happening all over Jerusalem. Where these disciples of Jesus have gathered together to worship Christ. To celebrate the Lord's Supper and to hear the word of the apostles. And he's finding out about these different meetings. And he's kicking in doors and dragging out disciples of Jesus. We're talking brutal, brutal persecution. And then notice that it's so brutal, he's not even sparing women. Okay? Men and women dragged to jail. And it's really important for us to understand that this persecution is not just about going to jail for Jesus. He's dragging them to prison to kill them. To, that, that he would secure their execution in these prisons in Jerusalem at the hand of the Jewish leaders. And we know that. Okay, we know he's not just jailing Christians. We know he's killing Christians. Because later in the book of Acts, when he tells his testimony, we read these words. Acts chapter 22. Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So I don't want us to miss this, okay? In Acts 8, the blood of Christians is being spilt. Christians are being killed on a wide scale in Acts chapter 8. It's a great persecution. It's a ravaging of the church of Jesus. Brutal. Brutal persecution. And then I want us to remember that even though that this persecution has a leader named Saul, we're going to talk more about him later because that's not the last word with Saul. Even though this persecution has a leader, we know as followers of Christ because we read the word of God that the ultimate personality behind this persecution is not Saul, it's Satan. That this is a satanic attack on the church of Jesus Christ. And we know that because the very beginning of our Bible and the very end of our Bible and everything in between reveals to us that Satan hates Christians. Satan hates the people of God. Satan always has. If you're a follower of Christ here today, Satan wants to kill you. And he would if God permitted it. He wants you dead. He wants to off you. He wants to destroy you. Always has. And so we find 
That this persecution that we see in Acts chapter 8 is just an ongoing uh, another round of conflict that was declared in Genesis chapter 3. You remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. We read those words. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. From Genesis chapter 3, war was declared and war has been waged all through redemptive history. It's still happening right now. We're seeing a flashpoint and a glimpse of it in Acts chapter 8. That Satan hates Christians. Satan hates Christians. And then as we come to the very end of the Bible, we find out why. Why does Satan hate Christians? Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan hates Christians because Satan hates Christ. Satan hates Christians because Satan hates Christ. Satan persecutes Christians because Satan intends to do harm to the Christ. It's always been like this. Enmity, warfare, and periodically we see these flashpoints like we're seeing in Acts chapter 8 where blood is shed on a wide scale. Real suffering and followers of Jesus in the body of Christ. So that's important for us to know, right? In the world that we live in, in the life that we live to glorify Jesus Christ, that Satan hates the church and always has. Satan persecutes the church and always has. Always will until the very end. But what, what this text is going to show us is that even though he's launching this murderous attack in Jerusalem, this text is going to remind us that our God is stronger than him. He's filled with murder. He's filled with hate. Real human blood is falling to the ground. Real people are dying. And yet we're going to see that God is stronger than Satan. And we're going to see that not only uh, is he stronger in one sense, he would be stronger if he just stopped Satan. Okay? And he could do that, but he doesn't do that here. But what we see is him display even more strength and even more power that he doesn't stop Satan's attacks. But what God does is he turns Satan's attacks and he makes satanic persecution bow to him. This shows how powerful he is. He makes persecution bow to him and he uses the tactics of Satan to accomplish his own purposes. And so I want us to, to see that, that, that this persecution, it has an effect. And really it has two in our text in Acts chapter 8. It has an initial effect and then it has an ultimate effect. Initial effect first. The initial effect is that this persecution leads to the dispersion of the Jerusalem church. Look at verse 1. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Paul's right there. Okay? That's important. Last time we read those words in the book of Acts with that prophecy that I read to you at the very beginning of the sermon... Jesus prophesied, did he not, that those specific regions would hear a gospel witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So look at this. Notice this. Out of everywhere that these persecuted ones could have landed, they land in the exact place that Jesus prophesied that region is going to hear the gospel. You're going to be my witnesses in this location. So I want you to think about that. That man, what a, what a coincidence. You know, everywhere they could have landed, they land right there. Or is something else happening that God in the midst of this persecution is working his sovereign purposes. Working his sovereign purposes. And this is what we see in this text. That they're scattered, but this is not a random accident. This is a sovereign appointment 
from the God who rules all things. And I want to just remind us of that. Okay? The early church knew this. They, they knew that they didn't live by accident. Okay? And we need to be reminded of this. We got worldviews flying out of us at us all the time that you are a, a, a bag of uh, evolved atoms, that you are um, you know, evolved stardust, that your life is meaningless, that you have no purpose. You're just a random bag of accidents. Uh, and, and the Word of God says the exact opposite. You're an image bearer of God. You're created in the image of God. And you live where you live and you work where you work. For sovereign purposes. You are not an accident. Okay? And they knew this. They knew that the area of the world, the geographic area and the generation that they lived in, that it wasn't an accident, that they were here for sovereign purposes. And later in the book of Acts, that, that truth that these Christians grabbed a hold of is applied to every human being on planet Earth. There is, you will never meet a human being who is an accident. Every human being that you will ever meet is an image bearer of God. And they have been sovereignly placed and planted by God for His purposes. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God. The word of God just laid a claim on every human being that breathes and, and draws breath in this creation. You live in the period that God determined. You live in that boundary, in that geographic location that God determined. And then that text tells us why. Why are you here? Why do you live where you live? Why are you alive in this world? And that text says, to seek God. You are made for Him. You are made to enjoy Him and to glorify Him forever. Sovereignty. Okay? So we got to drive that mindset of accidents and randomness. I'm trying to bleed the word random out of my vocabulary. It's been really hard for me. So it's, you know, this random thing happened to me. And I'm trying to bleed that out and replace it with the word, this sovereign thing happened to me. There's no such thing as random. Okay? Our God rules over all things and He has placed us where He has placed us for His purposes. And they understood that. Okay? They understood that as I'm scattered wherever I'm at in this world, I live for Him. I exist for Him, for His purposes. And then I want us to see the ultimate effect of this persecution. So not only did they, did they move, not only did they scatter, but we see that this persecution ultimately leads to an evangelistic explosion okay, in this region, in this time period. And they, they penetrated unreached people groups. People groups that did not have the gospel after this persecution and after this dispersion, they now had the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a gospel witness in their midst. Verse 4 says, Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now we're going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. Okay? Because I think there's a challenge for us in those words. And I think there's also great encouragement for us in those words. And we're going to spend some time considering both. They all, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 4. Challenge first. I submit to you that those words are a challenge for every believer to be involved in evangelism. Okay, I want to say that again. These words in verse 4 are a challenge to every believer that every believer would be involved in evangelism. Why are you saying that? Notice what's not said in verse 4. We have no mention of and the apostles. 
No mention of and the early church leaders. No mention of and the deacons and the preachers and the theologians. None of that. These are ordinary disciples of Jesus. And they're kicked out of town. And where they land, they speak of Christ. They evangelize. They preach the gospel. Ordinary Christians. And this is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. It's not the only place where this happens. Leaders lead, no doubt. Okay? Leaders in the church have a role to lead, no doubt. But the New Testament puts forward that every member in the body of Christ is to be engaged in evangelism. They are to pursue the mission of Jesus. Now we talked about this just a few chapters back in Acts 4. We saw God awaken His people, this church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read these words. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember that? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. With boldness. Every disciple of Jesus, a disciple maker. Every disciple of Jesus that believes the gospel has a responsibility to share the gospel. Every member in the body of Christ engaged in the mission of Jesus. This is what we see. That's the challenge for us. They did that. Ordinary Christians. We don't even know their name. And they are responsible for penetrating unreached people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an encouragement to us. Notice in verse 4. We are told that they went about preaching the word, preaching the word. And I want to mention that that word preach, it's a good translation, but it has some unnecessary and really unhelpful connotations in some of the ways that we hear that. Okay. And the connotation that comes to mind that, that, we, that, that this word is not communicating to us is that every Christian scattered around and they publicly preach sermons. They publicly preach sermons about Jesus Christ. They did not. Okay? And sometimes we can have a real narrow view of what that word preach means. And this is helpful for me that the word that he uses here, the Greek word that he uses here, is actually the verb form of the word gospel. Okay? And I love to think about this, that literally what they were doing as they were scattering around is they were gospeling. They were gospeling. They, they were scattered and they were gospeling. And guess what? That means that somebody got gospeled, you know, in, G in Judea and Samaria. Gospeling. And the thing that's encouraging about that to me is that there's a broadness in that word that covers any form of speech that communicates the truth about Jesus Christ. Not just that public preaching sermon stuff. Any form of speech that communicates the truth about Jesus Christ. And this is encouraging to me. This means that evangelism can happen anywhere, anytime. This means that evangelism can happen at your kid's bedside before they go to bed at night. That you speak to them about Jesus Christ. That you have an evangelistic conversation with your children. Guess what? This can happen in your break room of your workplace. That you can have a gospel conversation with your co-worker. You can gospel them. Okay? Even if you don't get to preach a sermon to them. You can gospel them. You can share the gospel. This can happen in the hallway of a hospital. This can happen with somebody you know very well and somebody you don't know at all. It can be a peaceful, uh, uh, dialed down conversation in a coffee shop about Jesus. And it can be a heated, contentious debate at, on, the, on the sidewalk of the abortion clinic about Christ. There's broadness here. That every member in the body of Christ is engaged in the mission that they are speaking about Jesus. They are sharing the gospel. They are sharing the good news. And this is, this is a privilege for us. And we, we've said this before. That I mean, think about this. Are you not thankful that God didn't take this area of the Christian life of mission... And, and gospeling 
and only give it to just a few in the body of Christ. And you got those varsity Green Beret Christians and they do that good stuff and we, we do the other stuff, you know. Are you not thankful that he calls every one of his children into the ministry of reconciliation? That every follower of Christ gets to be his ambassador. Every follower of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are. We get to be. We have a duty to share the gospel. That's true. We need to feel it. We have a duty. We have commands to obey. But when we're thinking rightly, we don't get stuck on that. We think we get to do this. This is a privilege to speak about the King of glory. Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who was resurrected from the dead. We get to speak of Christ. And if you notice something here, this is another encouraging thing. Is that Luke in Acts 8, he presents evangelism to us as a natural thing for a Christian. Look at, look at how, how he talks about it. They, it's just as natural as they move, they preach. Okay? Think about that. For the writer of Acts to scatter Christians was synonymous with spreading the gospel. That's how natural it is. Wherever they are, they speak about Jesus. They exist for Christ. And this is a challenge for us. That we have to learn to see ourselves right here. Okay, That we live where we live. That we work where we work. That we do what we do for a reason. We have a stewardship in every one of those areas. To be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. To speak of Jesus. And this is really helpful for us. To drive that, that random accident stuff out of our mind. And remind ourselves wherever I am I'm sent. You don't just happen to work where you work. You're sent. You don't just happen to live where you live. You're sent by King Jesus. To be his ambassador. And so these Christians scattering around. Uh, preaching Christ, it challenges us. And then I want us to consider, but it also encourages us. Because this story that started with persecution, but it ends with the advance of the gospel, is it shows us that God is sovereign over persecution. And that means that God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, God is so sovereign and so powerful that he can turn it and use it to accomplish his purposes. And we see him do this in two ways in this text. The power of God, the sovereignty of God. And the first way we see God flex his sovereign power is that he turns the persecution. We're going to talk about that. But then the second way that we see him flex his sovereign might and his sovereign power is he turns the persecutor. He turns the persecution, makes it accomplish his purpose, and then he turns the persecutor and makes him accomplish his purpose. So this has given us a tremendous glimpse into the power of God. And that's the encouragement for us today, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He really has this much power and this much authority. So let's start first with God turning the persecution. And I want you to consider just for a moment. What did Satan intend for that persecution to accomplish? When he ravaged the church. What was his intention? And it was, it was to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are getting stabbed in the heart by the Holy Spirit. People are believing on the Christ of God. People are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is becoming everything to them. And they're making it known far and wide in Jerusalem. Satan's trying to stop that. He's trying to shut their mouth. And he does. He, 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 ex he executes his scheme. But look at what happens. What effect? What effect did that persecution have? And just consider this, okay? Not only did it not work, it had the exact opposite effect of what it was intended to do. It was intended to stop the gospel, 
And God makes it bow and turns it in such a way that it's used to scatter the gospel. That's powerful. Okay? That's powerful. I'll give you an example. Um, I thought about this, of how frustrating it would be to have God as your enemy. That you would oppose and be locked into warfare with uncreated sovereignty. Eternal, never-ending power. A God so mighty that even your attacks that you wage toward Him, He turns them and uses them to accomplish His purposes. I'll give you just a little example of this. Imagine, uh, this is an illustration I thought of. This is uh, Brother Shane Brogdon, is, is my boxing buddy. Um, and I thought about this boxing analogy. Okay? Just imagine that you were in a boxing match and you had an enemy that was this powerful. Okay? And I want you to imagine, okay? So we're, we're talking about you're in a boxing match and, and every jab you try to land and every haymaker, you know, you try to land, every single time your opponent ducks it, blocks it, you can't touch him. Okay? Don't you imagine how frustrating that would be? Make you feel like a, 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 a little boy among men, right? You can't even touch this guy. Um, he's blocking everything, ducking out of the way. And that would be bad enough, but I want you to imagine how frustrating it would be if it was even a step further than that. That every time you went to land a jab on your opponent, that he worked it in such a way that you turned and just hit yourself right in the face. Just think about that. Think about how frustrating that would be. And you're frustrated, so you try to hit them even harder, and you just hit your, you're just pounding yourself right in the face, filled with rage. How powerful is that opponent? Not only is he able to evade you and stop everything that you try to do, but he turns every one of your attacks and turns it against you. That's powerful. And then I want us to take that illustration on a cosmic scale over thousands of years of redemptive history. And this is exactly what God has done to Satan over and over and over again. Every time this foe, this ancient evil serpent has opposed him, God has turned it and it's walked him one step closer to his destruction. Over and over and over we see this. And this high view of God's sovereignty over Satan, this is what led the second century church leader Tertullian to pen these famous words. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the idea is communicating there is you kill Christians, but it has the opposite effect. It has the opposite effect that propagates the gospel. It spreads the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the important thing for us to understand is why. Why? Why is the blood of the martyrs the seed of the church? And the answer to that is because God is sovereign over Satan. God turns satanic opposition and, it, and He makes it accomplish His own purposes. I want to tell you the most powerful display of this principle, of this truth, of God being sovereign over Satan. And the clearest place we see this is at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about that. If you've read the Old Testament before, you know that that entire uh, collection of books that you can trace this theme all the way through the Old Testament. Satan tries to kill the Christ. In Genesis 3.15, there is one who is promised who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And from that point forward, Satan is filled with rage and attempts to murder this promised seed. Over and over and over, uh, you see Satan attack, attempt to kill the seed, but God preserve, God protect. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he succeeds. And what he's tried to do from the book of Genesis forward, all of a sudden he succeeds. And the Christ is dead, dead, dead. Three days in the tomb. No pulse, 
No life, cold, dead Christ. And I want us to see this principle playing out. Can you imagine the celebration of the evil one? I did it. I did what I've tried to do for thousands of years. The Christ is dead, dead, dead. And then what we see happen in those same gospel accounts is God does the same thing again, again. Is he takes the attacks of Satan and he turns them and makes them accomplish his own purpose. And we are told in God's word that it is through this very thing, the death of Jesus Christ that looks like his defeat is the very thing that destroys God's enemy, Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So I want you to think about how frustrated of a being Satan is. I mean, he took out, uh, this, this is just, just a way to think about it. He took out his sword at the death of Jesus Christ and he dropped his mega weapon. He dropped the death blow. The one that was to win the entire victory at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And what we're told, through death, he destroyed the devil. That instead of it being the mega weapon, it's a sword that thrust his own soul. That God used the crucifixion of Jesus to demolish, to destroy, to tear down Satan and all of his works. The frustrating thing over and over again to, to bump into uh, and to be opposed to sovereignty. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And we're seeing that same thing play out in Acts 8. Sovereignty of God over Satan. Turn satanic persecution to accomplish His purpose. And then I want us to keep going. So we see it at the cross of Christ. We've really seen it all the way from the Garden of Eden. We see it in the early church in Acts chapter 8. Does God still do this? And the answer is yes, He does. We see these same principles play out throughout church history. One specific period that I want to draw our attention to this morning is the English Reformation. We see these same principles play out in the Protestant English Reformation. And the reason that's important for us is because we speak English. We live in the English world that something happened uh, uh, almost 500 years ago that guarded the gospel and passed it down to us where we can hear it and understand it and read God's word. And these same truths we see play out in the English Reformation. Men who spoke the same language that we do sealed the gospel with their blood. They paid the ultimate price for professing faith in Jesus Christ. They were persecuted unto death. Two leaders of the English Reformation were known as Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. The account of their persecution, you can read about it in Fox's Book of the Martyrs. I would encourage you to get a copy of that and read it if you haven't. So I want you to listen to the account of these men. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. 1555, they were both charged by Catholic leaders in the Church of England with believing and propagating Protestant heresy. Protestant heresy. That's just AKA for the gospel. That they were on trial uh, by Catholic leaders for believing the gospel. Okay? The truth about Jesus Christ. Both of these men were tried together and executed together. And at their trial, they both stood boldly for the true gospel. When asked to recant, recant, Dr. Ridley said these words. He said, as for the gospel doctrine, I will preach it so long as my tongue shall wag. And if necessary, I will seal it with my blood. You thankful for a man like that who came before you? An English reformer who, who sealed the gospel in his generation with his blood? And it's through this, this persecution that we have the gospel today 
in our language, preach it as long as my tongue shall wag, and if necessary, I will seal it with my blood. These men were martyred together. They were led to the stake. As they got there, both of them kneeled down and kissed the stake on which they would be shortly burned for Jesus Christ. And as the fire was lit and these men were being ex executed at, at the stake for professing allegiance to the true gospel, I want you to listen to what this old man says. Old man named Latimer, Hugh Latimer. They're bound together to the same stake. And he turns as the fire begins to touch his body. He turns to comfort his friend, Dr. Ridley. And I want you to listen to the things that he grabbed a hold of in the final words of his life. He turns to Ridley as the fire is touching his body. And he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England that by God's grace, I trust it will never be put out. Think about that. I want you to see what he just did in his dying moments. He grabbed a hold of these truths of God that we're giving attention to today. So think about this. Burning at the stake. And he does not say, Ridley, we've lost. We've lost. He's about to give his life for Christ. And he's saying, we've won. We've won. We've won. This fire is never going out. You see this? He's convinced that God is turning this satanic opposition for the gospel. And he's going to use it to accomplish his purpose. And he did. And God did that. The fire of the English Reformation is still burning in the English world. He sealed the gospel with his blood. God is sovereign over all the works of Satan. And you know, we really see the same principle play out in how the gospel got to America. That the English separatists were a persecuted people. They were persecuted for their faith in Christ and they fled. And they came to the new world, to New England, and they began to colonize and set up a new life in the new world. And guess what? When they came here, they didn't come by themselves. They brought the gospel with them. They brought Jesus with them. And guess what? The church of Jesus is scattered all across America today. Why? Because God takes persecution and he uses it. He bends it. He turns it. To accomplish his own purposes. Last thing I want us to see in this passage. Is that not only does God turn the persecution. God also turns the persecutor. The persecutor. And I want you to remember that man that we talked about at the beginning. That man named Saul. That he is brutally ravaging the church of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts, we're going to read about this in the next chapter, is that God's going to take this brutal persecutor and he is going to make him the leader of the evangelistic mission to all nations. He's going to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So think about that pivot. Think about how powerful that shows your God to be. Is he can take a man who spills the blood of Christians, bloodshedder, persecutor, violent persecutor, and he can flip this man and turn him in such a way that he becomes the greatest evangelist in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Does that not show how powerful he is? He's turning all the works of Satan against him to accomplish his purpose. First Timothy chapter one, Paul makes comments on his conversion. And not only are we told that Paul is converted to Christ, but we're told why. Why would God do that? Why would God flip a man like that? A violent persecutor. Listen to these words. First Timothy chapter one, verse 13. Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. 
a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And then he says, but I received mercy. I received mercy. He became a new creation. His sins were forgiven. He had a new heart and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did God do that? Just a few verses later, verse 16, we read these words. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Listen. Our last reminder, our last glimpse from this text. The Word of God says that the power and the patience that God used to save this violent, persecuting Apostle Paul is the same power and patience that's available to save you. And this is an encouragement from God's Word. That he's showing us in turning this man that no one in this room is beyond the reach of the grace of God. No one. No one. Same patience that Paul used. Same, same power that God used in Paul's life is available to you. Prophet Isaiah says it this way. God's hand is not too short to save. There is no one beyond his reach. I want anybody leaving here today believing that satanic lie that your sin is too much for the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not. It is not. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would make your word effective in our life, God, and that you would increase our knowledge of you, Lord. And we pray that you, the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would not just be an idea to us, but Lord, that you would walk with us daily, that you would draw near to us, and that we would experience your power in our life, in the midst of our suffering. Make, make us a confident people, Lord, full of trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.